Nothing on this podcast is intended as legal advice, nor does it create an attorney-client relationship. Please be advised that this podcast also contains spoilers and swears. Welcome to Murder, She Woke, a podcast about coffee drinkers, gum chewers, and jazz. I'm your host, Laura. And I am your other host, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. What is new with you? What is new with me? Funny you should ask, because just recently I made the general announcement, meaning I haven't told my parents yet, that I am relocating to the West Coast in the spring. So I am going to become a Portland, Oregon hipster and disappear into a cascade of fair trade coffee and feminist bookstores. And hopefully lots of flannel. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with flannel. I'm like pre-planning my flannel, like how to work it into my wardrobe. But the one thing that's a pain in the ass besides moving 2,600 miles is that I have to like apply for the Oregon bar, which is fine because like I've been admitted long enough, I get reciprocity, but I still have to fill out this whole form and like get all these documents saying I'm not a liar or a criminal from people who know me. And during the course of this, I realized I had a speeding ticket that I got from Virginia. Fuck Virginia, by the way. Virginia is for lovers. Of what? That's they're they're very not very specific in that that could be interpreted, but I have to get all these pieces of paper. And then I realized I hadn't paid this speeding ticket that I got. So I go online and I try to pay it and it's like, oh no, call the clerk. And then I call the clerk and then I get this like endless loop of music. I'm literally trying to give you money. Stop it. And then when I had initially gotten the ticket, the cop was like, oh, I can't tell you for how much it is. You have to figure it out based on this like formula that you have to get you literally have to calculate your own speeding okay i'm sorry but that's not as bad as tax because okay you go to to pay your taxes and it's like okay tell me how much i owe no you have to figure that out okay so if i get it wrong like no big deal right you'll just tell me no if you get it wrong you're gonna go to jail okay first of all most people aren't important enough for jail That is something that I used to tell my clients all the time when they would fret. I'm like, just pay them the fucking... But I understand the sentiment and... uh, It's like, okay, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to pick out all of these groceries. And then instead of just scanning it and ringing it up, like, I have to calculate how much I owe you. But, But you already know. You already know how much I owe. But then I have to calculate it as well. Speaking of not that, I just wanted to let you know that I had a follow-up from a conversation that we had in the last episode about the sticking one's head in the oven Mm -hmm. and about how if that is an effective means of suicide or could be staged as such and can confirm from an actual real life science person, my friend Marnie, yes, if you did pass out from barbiturate overdose near an open gas oven, you might suffocate. I just want everyone out there to know that stands up to medical and scientific scrutiny. So. All right. Way to, way to go, Murder, She Wrote yeah. writers. Also that, I hear you have exciting. I do have some exciting news. Over the weekend, I found out, not found out, my brother called me to tell me that he and his wife are expecting. This will be my third little niece or nephew. I really hope that you and your wife are those super cool aunts who, like, do mysterious things and go traveling to cool places and come back with really cool presents. I don't think we're there yet. I'm the I'm the aunt that always brings over donuts. That's kind of my tagline. Every time I go to my sister's house, my niece will run up to me and ask me for donuts. <laughs> well, that's a hole that you're going to have to dig yourself out of eventually. Either that or she's just going to uh, come to expect more. So also, I wanted to say that this episode is 
our first where we have our very own, I don't know if you'd call it guest star, guest host. Expert witness? Yes, expert witness. My friend Dana is coming on to talk about ethics and journalism. So super fun. Stay tuned. But first we have to get through this episode. So I am going to hand that off to you, Laura. All right. So I'm going to take the baton. All right. So let's talk about season one, episode 14, Murder to a Jazz Beat. Jessica is in New Orleans. She is filming a TV segment for the New Orleans Today show. At this point, she's in a cab. It's driven by this guy named Lafayette, and I am super embarrassed for the writers for that name. It's just a bad stereotype. He, and also, he seems to be the only cab driver in New Orleans because he picks Jessica up probably 10 times in this episode. And he has a terrible New Orleans accent. It's not even close. I have been to New Orleans once, so I'm pretty much an expert. And that's not how they talk. Jessica finally gets to the TV studio to film the show. And she runs in because she thinks she's running late. But the TV studio is empty. And then the show's host, his name is Jonathan Hawley. Hawley? Howley. Howley? It's Hawley, like Josh Hawley, like Senator that... Yes. So it's H-A-W-L-E-Y. But then just saying it out loud... Sounds like Holly, the girl's name. So Jonathan is not from New Orleans. He's clearly Irish, but he's kind of adapting the New Orleans accent, but it's worse than Lafayette's accent. So he's clearly Irish Jonathan. That's she, he, Jonathan tells Jess that she's actually two days early. It turns out that Jessica got her dates wrong. She's actually supposed to be dedicating a library right now. Oops, she's not there. But Jonathan, he's giddy, like, almost manic to have her in town for the next couple of days. He's, like, going on and on about all the things they're going to do. And I was exhausted. So Jonathan takes Jessica to this jazz club restaurant. And we meet there. We meet Ben Coleman, who is a super talented jazz musician from New Orleans. And he is about to move to Vegas. We also meet Eddie. And Eddie is... He played Big Al in Fried Green Tomatoes. So I just named him Big Al Eddie throughout the the show. And Big Al Eddie is kind of like Ben's gopher or right-hand man. I have a quick question about Eddie. Do you think he's supposed to be played as slow? Yes. And he doesn't really show it in this scene, but like in the next few scenes, it to me, it's pretty obvious that he's he's on the spectrum. And then we meet a guy named Crank, who's the who's Ben's like manager talent broker. And then also Ben's mistress is there. And Kramer doesn't really like the mistress. He doesn't really like Ben all that much either. That's his talent. So at one point in this meeting, Ben is confronted by his bandmates. They've just learned that Ben is dumping them and they're not going to Vegas. And then one of the bandmates, a guy named Yubi, threatens to kill him. Eventually, everyone leaves the table except for Kramer, Jonathan, and Jessica. Jonathan makes introductions and then... It looks like Kramer's kind of getting sweet with Jessica, and he invites her to a taping that's happening that night. It's a Ben's band at a barn, the Bourbon Street Bar. Is that a real place? Not that I'm aware of, but I don't know. I was only there a few I, days, and it, it was it was I, a work trip. Can we just briefly like digress into a little bit of kind of setting the scene because I think it's a little bit important about the way the racial dynamics are set up in this scene and also in this episode. It's interesting to notice that when they're in this club, the musicians are all black, except for the white guy who is uh, Ben's drummer. And all of the patrons, the manager, Jonathan, Irish Jonathan, Jessica, like they're all old white. And this becomes a little bit of a pattern is you always see like black performers they're putting on a show or they're hanging out together 
it's it's all very I don't want to say segregated because that's a terrible fucking word, but that almost seems like the best approximation that I could is that like there's a very clear delineation. So gonna put that in your pipe. Yes, well thanks for that commentary and setting that up because it is very important throughout the episode. The next scene, we are at the Bourbon Street Bar for the taping. And then here is where it kind of becomes a little apparent that Big Al Eddie is a little slow. So he goes into, I guess it's like Callie's office or something. It's in this room. She's reviewing music sheets. And he gives her a rose because she's special. Oh, and Callie, sorry, Callie is Ben's wife. And... Big Al Eddie, he just, I don't even know how to say it. He's just a little slow. And Callie kind of coddles him here. She's She seems very kind and caring and also like pretty proper and intelligent. Or is telling her about Ben dropping the band, but she already knows that. Big Al Eddie also tells Callie about the new mistress, but Callie isn't worried. She just brushes it off and says, this one won't last any longer than any of the other ones. So this is a a common theme for her husband, Ben, who is the very talented musician. Talk about Ben just very to set up because the one thing that comes out later and he's kind of he's just kind of this like stereotype of this lecherous musician full of himself and he's pawing up on this lady in the middle of the restaurant flaunting an affair in front of his wife and then just confidently saying my wife will stand by her man so he's just kind of this guy you're set up not to like because he's full of himself and he's fucking his band over and his wife who in contrast to him is very poised very dignified long-suffering like that kind of thing i think the one redeeming quality of ben though is that he's also very protective of big Eddie. there's a scene but he along with callie seems like they've they've really taken care of big Eddie. So after that scene, we see Jessica and Jonathan kind of walking through a hallway and they overhear a really loud shouting match between Kramer and Kramer comes out of the room where they're having the shouting match and runs into Jessica and Jonathan and just kind of plays it off. It's nothing. And then before, before Ben and Callie go out to play for the evening, they have a discussion, at which point she gives him a stick of gum. We learn that he has quit smoking, and this is kind of one of the tools he uses to quit smoking. She also confronts him about dropping the band, and he's a total asshole about that. There's like this weird cryptic conversation where he's like, oh, are you worried about me dropping you too? And then she just kind of confidently smiles but not condescending but just kind of confidently confidently smiles and says no i'm not worried about so it seems here like she's holding something over his head comes up callie's actual name is carol but i believe the line was ben named her callie because he thought carol was too pretentious or something he said high tone High tone. Yeah, can you imagine that? Like, not even, they didn't even say nicknaming. They He named her Callie because her real name was, like, too too high tone. He's a, he's a talented musician, but a shit of a guy. And so that's the perfect formula for the victim in this, in this show. Which leads us to the next scene where the band is performing at the Bourbon Street Bar. Cameras are there. They're taping this. And so, listen, I'm fine with jazz music. I I can't say I'm a lover of jazz music. I, I don't hate jazz music. Like, jazz music is fine. But there was, like, at least 45 seconds of them playing jazz music. Like, in... It was just a long time to watch a show of people playing jazz music. I actually thought the same thing because I I didn't know if they were trying to show off like the actor skills or drive it home that Ben was 
good at what he did or if they just had to fill up time. It was just, it was too long. And Callie plays the piano for the band. So that's important. So after this like long 45 seconds of them playing, and it transitions through different songs. So I think you're supposed to get the idea of like they've been playing for a couple hours. But the band stops playing long enough for Jonathan to come up and he makes some kind of introduction um, about like Ben is playing this next song. It's not his song, but he's like covering it as an homage to another famous jazz musician. Ostensibly, this is supposed to be Ben's like goodbye performance because, but they were trying to kind of couch it in such a way as it's like goodbye for now, not goodbye forever. So Big Al Eddie hands Ben a clarinet and Ben starts playing it. And a few seconds into the song, Ben collapses. Now, my favorite part of this episode is a doctor rushes over and you know, he's a doctor because he rushes over. He, he bends down. He says, I'm a doctor. And then he just pulls Ben, one of Ben's eyelids up and then pronounces him dead. That's all he did. No CPR. He didn't check for breathing. It didn't look like he just checked for a pulse. He just pulled his eyelid open and said he was dead. Do you have a better idea of how to be a doctor? (laughs) No, I get that though. I feel like you would at least, even if someone stops breathing, you would at least try to give them CPR. You would think that, but he actually, we actually find out later, I think he's only an intern. So maybe that's why he doesn't know how to do that. I'm trying to give him credit, even though I really don't want to. And I called him the 12 year old doctor in my notes, just because like, he looks like he's like a kid. I feel that that... Like, was it like you missed the opportunity to call him Doogie Hauser? I thought about that, but I was kind I didn't want to like go with the obvious. And plus, I didn't know if Doogie Hauser, I've never watched. I think he was about, eh, maybe. I, that's another show I didn't get to watch because I didn't have a TV while I was so super fun. So the doctor like gets up and pronounces him dead of a coronary, but then Jessica disagrees and says he was poisoned. She says, look at the color drain around his lips and the faint blue tint of the moons on his fingertips. So apparently she was writing this book called Murder on the Amazon. And through her research, she found this poison that's very rare, very fast acting and very deadly from South America. And she theorizes this was the poison used to kill Ben. And then after she says this about the poison, we see Callie like surreptitiously take this styrofoam coffee cup off the piano and put it into her back. So something's going on with that. Eventually, this this guy comes in, Detective Lieutenant Simeon Kershaw. He comes in. And he's all pissed to learn that Jessica is saying that the man has been poisoned. He tells Jessica that autopsies are expensive and that if poison isn't found in his system, she is going to be arrested for impeding an an investigation. Can I just stop you right there? I feel like that's not true. I feel like this guy was just needlessly aggressive. Like he just steamrolled in and just started like lopping off heads. And I'm like, you haven't even gotten this person like to a hospital to find out what's going on. Like, fuck you, dude. Seriously. Like Doogie Howser over there isn't doing us any good. No, he was very aggressive. He came out swinging for sure. He definitely at first is not one of those detectives that is seeking Jessica. Jonathan and Jessica are talking about the murder and then Jessica's book, Murder on the Amazon. And then they're interrupted by by this guy who looks like a mean Mark Twain. Okay, I called called him evil Kenny Rogers. His name is Turnbull. I'm just going to call him Mark Twain. He also works for the television station. And he wants to show the tape of Ben dying on the 11 o'clock news. Right? And then Jonathan gets really pissed. And then his Irish accent comes out really hard. And they have a fight. And then Kramer ends up taking Jessica home. But first he wants to take her out for a nightcap. So they go to this courtyard bar. And... That actually did look pretty New Orleans-ish. I went to a few courtyard bars when I was in New Orleans. I went to Pat O'Brien's. I think that's a famous bar. 
It was a lot of fun. But during this conversation, we just learned that Ben wasn't a nice guy. He had quit smoking and drinking, but and now he chews gum and drinks coffee. He even drinks coffee when he plays the clarinet or is performing. And we also learned that Kramer is just like a talent broker. He's got several several bands, and his bands like go overseas and play a lot. But he's not very good. And even he, like, admits to that. He calls himself, like, it was a, a talent agent with a tin ear or something. So the next morning, Jessica is in the detective's, detective's office. And they're both watching the news clip of Ben dying. And then initially, the detective gets really pissed at Jonathan because he thinks that Jonathan is just trying to make his way up in television. It turns out that's not correct at all because Jonathan stumbles in shortly after because he had just quit the show because he was so upset because the television, the this news station played the clip of him dying. So what's kind of funny is that the detective ended up reading Jessica's book, Murder on the Amazon, and told the coroner to check the lining of Ben's liver. And so that report mis- like somehow comes back within a couple of hours and it's positive for this super deadly, fast acting, rare poison from South America. The tox screen is also positive for narcotics, which um, Jonathan and Jessica find pretty interesting. Jessica points out that Ben's group just recently t- returned from South America and theorizes that that's how the drugs, the narcotics, and the poison, that's how they were smuggled in. The detective reveals that he, throughout the last couple of years, has gotten tips that the group is is smuggling stuff in, but he could never nail them. And then he reveals that 14 years ago, a, a liquor store clerk was killed in a robbery, but Callie alibi that murder remained unsolved. So then they just kind of all start pondering about how he was poisoned. Like, how did it get in his body? Someone mentions a coffee cup, but then the detective said he went back there early in the morning to to collect it, but it was gone. And then Jessica also mentions that she looked for it last night and it was gone as well. Then Jessica realizes, oh yeah, hey, um... There, this was taped. The whole thing was taped. There were three cameras going. Let's go review the tapes. Maybe that will show either who took the coffee cup or it maybe reveals some some light on to Gabe and the poison. While the three are at the TV station, they're going through the tapes and we see that, and this is so gross to me, on the tape, they see Ben taking out his gum and sticking it under the chair. That's so rude. And then they see that Callie drinks from the same cup of, cup of coffee. So clearly the coffee cup wasn't poison. So then they're like, well, then who took it? And then why did they take it? Meanwhile, mean old Mark Twain busts in. And he starts yelling at Jonathan because Jonathan doesn't have permission to be there anymore. And then Jessica, like, grows some big-ass balls and and tells Mark Twain that she actually has a theory about Ben's murder, and she was hoping to share it on Jonathan's TV show. But, oh, Jonathan doesn't have a TV show anymore, so I guess I will just have to take it to one of your competitors and talk about my theory there. And then Mark Twain just starts groveling and saying, oh, well, it could be reinstated, and Jessica just doesn't want to deal with his bullshit. So they leave, (laughs) but it turns out that Jessica doesn't really have a theory of the case yet. She's still working on it, but she just wanted to rattle Mark Twain and fuck with him a little bit. I mean, he totally deserved, yeah. And and watching a grown man cry is always... In the meantime, the detective now believes that Callie poisoned Ben because the detective discovered that Ben didn't buy her a plane ticket for Vegas. So he got one for himself, obviously, one for Big Al Eddie, and then one for his mission. So now the detective believes that Callie murdered Ben. So they, all the police, are at the Bourbon Street barn collecting every piece of chewing gum stuck anywhere in the place. That just is so disgusting to me. I just have a thing with gum. I don't like it. It creeps so, me out. Have you Pikes Place, Seattle? No, I've never been there. There is literally an entire alley 
leading up to the Pike Place Market where there is chewed up wads of gum on either side. Like, it's a wide alley, so it's not like crammed in by it. But I was there with my friend Zachary, and I was like, well, this is fucking gross. Because when I was growing up, my dad was a high school teacher. So when we go and visit him in his classroom, the kids would stick gum under the under the desk. So that's immediately what I thought of. It didn't occur to me when we were walking back out of the Pike's Place Market that there was a gumball machine. So this wasn't accidental gum. There's literally a gumball machine there saying, hey, do you want to put all your germs into a small area and stick it? And there were like people taking pictures in front of it. The only means of ingress and egress to Pike Place Market, I just, I wouldn't, I'm not going to go. It's not, but for some reason, it was the way that we went, and also the way that, and also uphill, and I had a broken toe, so thanks, Zach. Oh, no, not doing it. Also, during this time, Jess somehow gets Lafayette, the cab driver, to take her to see Ben's group. So remember, Lafayette knows everyone and everything in New Orleans, so he just happened to know where Ben's group is performing at all times. Jessica wants to ask them questions, so Lafayette takes them to this like little club where it looks like the band is auditioning. Jessica kind of starts questioning them. They all deny killing him, but we learn that Kramer is not a very good businessman. He apparently has some other kind of side hustle that Jessica is not supposed to talk about because it could get people hurt. Now, as she's leaving the club, she just runs into Kramer, and Kramer wants to give her a ride so they can talk, but Lafayette gets very protective and a little aggressive, doesn't want Jess riding with Kramer. Eventually, Lafayette allows it, but he follows them. I don't really understand the point of of Lafayette's kind of you know, maybe it's to show that somebody like Jessica can relate to the black working. Yeah, I mean, Jessica's a doll. Don't get me wrong, but it it, it just seemed to I don't know a little unnecessary, a little out of. T- yeah, it's like they were swinging too hard in the opposite direction. We have to make sure that they know that she isn't racist. So let's put the most ridiculous caricature that we can find and make them best friends. Also, he worships her. Kramer is driving Jessica and they're talking and Jessica confronts him about using his bands to smuggle and smuggle and stuff. Or to smuggle. He admits it. He says, yeah, I, I just, I use that money to pay my singers and my bands when things are slow. I do it for them, really. And then Jessica is very stern. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, but there is no justification for drugs. And it was kind of surprising to see Jessica get, get so stern about this. But then Kramer says, oh, no, he, he doesn't, he doesn't smuggle in drugs. That's not what he does. But he had just learned that Ben was smuggling drugs on his own. So anytime Ben and his band were playing in another country or on cruises or whatever, Ben was, was taking that opportunity to smug, smug, smuggle in drugs for himself. And then that's what the argument was, was about the previous night. Kramer then continues to tell Jessica that Ben was bad and getting worse. I'm assuming talking about his drug addiction and that Ben was going to burn out less than a year. He also doesn't think that Callie could have killed him. She loved him way too much. And so now we go to uh, a scene where we are at Ben's wake, and there is a jazz band playing, which is really cool. And Callie and Big Al Eddie are standing in front of Ben's open casket, and Callie is comforting him kind of like a child. She's She's not being condescending about it, but he's very childlike. And then Big Owl Eddie puts Ben's clarinet, clarinet in the casket. And again, the detective barges in and he starts making demands and he arrests Kramer for smuggling and drugs and then also arrests Kramer for Ben's murder. The, the detective says that the clarinet reed was poisoned. So he, the detective, takes the clarinet out of the casket 
At which time, Big Al Eddie just loses it. He's having like a breakdown. He grabs the clarinet out of the detective hands. There's like the struggle going on. And he's really upset. He keeps saying like, he keeps saying no one is supposed to touch Miss Emma, which apparently is the name of clarinet. So the only people that are allowed to touch Miss Emma are Ben and Big Al Eddie. It seems like Big Al Eddie is really taking personal offense to this. Now, back at the detective's office, Jessica's there, and we learn that one of Kramer's bands just got busted for smuggling in diamonds. And as soon as they were busted, they immediately flipped on Kramer. Now the detective thinks that Kramer killed Ben because Ben wanted out of his contract. So he thinks that Kramer smuggled in this poison from South America to poison Ben. But Jessica makes the point that Ben didn't start blackmailing Kramer until after the South American trip. So it doesn't make logical sense that Kramer would have gotten the poison because the South America trip happened before Ben wanted to leave. So then what's really interesting is that we get a call. Well, we get a call. The detective gets a call from the lab and they didn't find any poison on the clarinet. So now we don't really have a murder weapon. They don't just say poison. They say nothing on the clarinet, which I I don't play... But I imagine if you are sticking a absorbent piece of something in your mouth, you're going to get saliva on it. So I thought that was weird. So we're kind of like back at the beginning on who killed Ben and how. Because we thought that maybe it was the coffee. Well, it wasn't the coffee because Callie drank out of it. We thought it was the gum, but all of the gum had been tested and nothing came out of that. And so then kind of the last answer was the clarinet. The clarinet was poison, but the lab just said there was nothing on the clarinet. We don't really know where to go from here, but Jessica and Jonathan are at the studio getting ready for the taping of the show. And they're in this like TV room, like the same room they were in before when they were reviewing the tapes. And Mark Twain tells Jonathan that the show is airing live. And then Jonathan gets really pissed, and then they start arguing. You can't really tell what they're arguing, like what they're saying, because Jessica's attention goes to this commercial about denture cleaner. And then she has her aha moment. And then she just runs out, as she is one to do. Uh, oh, Lafayette. <laughs> Lafayette takes Jessica to Ben's funeral. They're outside at the cemetery, and a jazz band is playing when the saints go marching in, which I thought was really cool. Big Al, Eddie, and Callie are standing next to the casket, and Big Al, Eddie is upset because the police took Miss Emma. And again, he is being very childlike here. Jessica explains that the police were just doing their job because they thought the clarinet was poison, and then... Big Al Eddie says, well, the clarinet couldn't have been poisoned because the only people allowed to touch the clarinet are him and Ben, no other people. And then Callie's kind of catching on here. She's nudging him to be quiet. And then Jessica says, well, there wasn't any poison on the clarinet read. And Callie gets really surprised and a little happy and, and says, oh, well, the detective was, was wrong then. But then Jess confronts Callie for taking the coffee cup. Jessica points out that as soon as she said Ben was poisoned, Callie immediately knew who did it and how. So she took the coffee cup to make it look like the coffee was poisoned. Jessica then goes on to explain that Ben drank coffee right, be right before playing the clarinet, and that would have stained the clarinet reed. But there was no stain on the clarinet reed that the lab took that the lab tested. Then she said that Big Al Eddie took the clarinet after Ben died and changed the read. Now, at this point, Big Al Eddie breaks down and he confesses. And he says that when they were teens, he and Ben did something real bad, but Callie told the police they were with her. So he's, he's pretty much copying to the murder of the store clerk here. Big Al Eddie then goes on to say that while they were in South America, Ben told him that he was going to poison Callie. 
and Big Al Eddie tried to talk him out of it. It didn't do any good. He tried to tell Callie, but Callie wouldn't listen to him. And Big Al Eddie couldn't just let Ben kill Callie. And that's how it ends. With Big Al Eddie crying and Callie crying and Jessica may have been crying. I want to pose the question. The detective thought that Ben was blackmailing Kramer, right? And saying, if you don't let me out of my contract, I'm going to go to the cops because I know you're smuggling shit in. But... Why would Ben do that? Why would he go to the cops when Ben has also been smuggling shit in? Yeah, you don't want to snitch on your co-conspirator, right? Unless they've already caught you and you're trying to make a deal. Yeah, that is related to a question that I wanted to ask about Callie and the liquor store, which is, at what point does she start like an accessory after the fact or complicit or something. I mean, I don't think she, I don't think her actions qualify as accessory after the fact. Well, she gave a false alibi. Right. So that would be one thing. Giving a false alibi, lying to investigators, probably perjury. I guess my question is this a situation of mutually assured destruction because if she was sitting on this information for 14 years and holding it over Ben's head is like a way of keeping him around and saying, well, if you leave me, I'm just going to go to the cops. Like at a certain point, she becomes complicit, especially after such a long period of time, because she's part of like a cover up. It wasn't, I understood what they were trying to say, but you don't realize that this is a crime, like lying, false alibi, and probably obstruction of justice. There's probably like a whole long... And I just I just Googled accessory after the fact. And I mean, it seems pretty vague enough that lying, like creating an alibi, maybe actually could be considered accessory after the fact. Yeah, or like abetting or like aiding. Like there's, there's like all that, that weird stuff like in Crim, how it's like kind of squishy and like purposefully broad to kind of giving giving aid and comfort to the enemy basically like okay well it's the same hiding a burglar in my house while the cops that kind so i thought that that was a little bit of an oversight and that kind of kind of killed that that whole plot line plus it kind of put callie in icky light it just didn't make me feel good like it just left a rotten taste in my mouth it's like everybody came out looking bad and to be honest eddie looks the worst or the least bad because like he killed somebody sure but he did it to protect callie who might have sold him out if she was looking at a jail sentence i don't know way to be the most moral person ever out of all these people so Another fun thing to think about. But the the big question that I have, and this is one that we will also talk to Dana about, is the tape and what its role is in this. Because it's actually for something that was maybe not a throwaway, but that wasn't that central to the plot aside from viewing it for evidence. It has a lot of really interesting kind of legal and ethical things attached to it. And, and we discussed this down the line, especially with Dana, is like this sent me down this giant internet rabbit hole of whether or not it was legal to actually put someone's legit death like on air. But I mean, then you've got to think like times in history, like 9-11 or JFK's death when that was very public. And the JFK thing kind of in its own league. Fun fact, I think the Zapruder film is one of the most viewed films like in the history of ever, which makes sense. The guy who was shooting it, his name was Abraham Zapruder. He was like a tourist and caught it all in video with his 90 video camera and they called it the Zapruder film. In this murder, it was a pretty neat murder. He didn't even vomit, which I think is pretty unrealistic. I think if you're being poisoned, your body's going to try to get that out of you by vomiting. And he didn't even vomit. He didn't throw, like, he didn't foam at the mouth. He didn't convulse. 
He just, he quietly collapsed and then went to sleep. The act, it seems a little in bad taste because there's a moment, I assume like the moment of death is like an experience. It shouldn't be gawked at. It shouldn't be like played for, for entertainment or ratings or that kind of thing, which is what evil Mark Twain was trying to do. So Laura, did, did you like this episode? I, no, I didn't. It did not accurately portray New Orleans. And granted, I am not a huge fan of New Orleans. Now, I will say I was there for a work trip and I really didn't get to experience the great things about New Orleans. I don't have the fondest memories of New Orleans, but I don't think this was a fair and accurate depiction of New Orleans. And I really just, the the way, the reason, Lafayette's name. Like, it's just so obviously stereotypical. And it was lazy. So no, I didn't really much care for it. And and I've said jazz music is, it's fine. And I didn't really like the 45 seconds of jazz. But I did like the jazz, like, funeral and the jazz band playing at the wake. I did really like that. Overall, I think I give it probably four ashtrays. What about you? I'd have to, like, agree with you. I'd probably give it and a half just because I just, like, was bummed out the whole time I was watching it. It almost seemed like there just wasn't much of an entertainment value to it. Him dying, this thing kind of creeped me out. It just seemed, I don't want to say lazy, criticized in that vein before, but it just feels like there's a... This this episode could have been done well, but it wasn't. So it's just it's a combination of bummers, bad legal reasoning, and terrible stereotypes. Laura, today is a very special day, and do you want to know why that is? Tell me. Because we have our very first, and hopefully not last, <laughs> guest, I don't know, contributor, expert witness. Expert witness expert witness that's what we're going to call people from uh you know hopefully going forward we'll have more of this but this is our uh friend and friend of the pod dana who i am going to let introduce herself and kind of brag on herself a bit well thank you that's so uh, so very exciting it's such an honor to be your first expert witness laura and al it's really really fun to be here elizabeth i'm dana i hail from Northwest Washington State and Seattle area. And my background is as a journalism teacher. So that's, I think, where I've been granted the opportunity to be here today. I taught and advised publications, high school publications for almost 20 years. And I have a bachelor's in English and a master's in journalism education. I want to say really upfront for those who might be listening who have practiced journalism as a career that I'm speaking a lot from theoretical and working with high school students, but also just having kind of a a nerd out personality and really liking to learn and think about all the different ethical aspects of the world of journalism. I know in the last segment, Laura and I, well, maybe not Laura, but I kind of got stuck on the dying on camera phenomenon and what exactly, how exactly something like that would play out. If that happened today, if a similar situation happened today, are there any considerations that you know, maybe us as lay people wouldn't necessarily think about. So like what's going on in the newsroom when they're talking about whether or not to show this tape? It's such a really interesting question because there aren't a lot of really bright lines drawn about this. There's sort of like this Venn diagram of a lot of different forces in journalism that are playing against each other or with each other in some cases. When they captured his death on camera, it was basically in the studio. It wasn't a public event. So it isn't like they went to the park to capture everybody walking around with their cotton candy and listening to music. They were in a sheltered situation that was private to the TV station. They were it was their event. So it's almost like today if somebody went on a talk show and then had an episode. So it also has to do with the privacy and the relative status of the person. If it were just a private citizen having a medical episode and being caught that, well, first of all, it wouldn't be 
as newsworthy because people wouldn't know who they were, especially in the 80s when you had your three, maybe four channels in every market and you didn't have, like we do today, a hundred different million channels to share video and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the privacy, the fact that he is a well-known public figure and very popular in the New Orleans community would be part of it as well. And then it would also be about the newsworthiness as two. The fact that he dies on camera is one thing. The fact that it's then determined probably to be murder probably also elevates it because now it's a crime, not just a terrible, sad, tragic accident. Mm -hmm. Another thing that most newsrooms would be thinking about is also the, the community standards and how graphic the images are. And that's a conversation that you read about a lot when you're reading about journalistic ethics is, does the newsworthiness of this event outweigh the fact that this is disturbing footage or very, um, very upsetting to somebody who might be tuned into the news? And that's why you'll hear folks giving warnings ahead of time if footage is going to be upsetting or graphic. So those are some of the conversations that I think in a real newsroom you would be hearing is what is our responsibility to share that this thing happened to this beloved musical figure in our community versus like what they do in the world of the show, which is it's news and we have it, you know. <laughs> uh, we had also mentioned in the last uh, segment about kind of how it would work with law enforcement and the value of the tape as evidence and basically who does it belong to I don't even know can you just like unpack that and obviously like production constraints always play into it and I but in the world of the show they don't say right off that they think that he's murdered and so I think in real life, if there was a suspicious death, and if, say, he had been shot instead of what we learn later that he's poisoned, and it's very clearly a crime, and especially in the 80s when they were working on physical media, I, I do believe, my understanding is that law enforcement would be able to, to seize that footage as evidence in a crime scene. I wonder if in the world of the show, they sort of got around that a little bit by it not being really clear for some period of time that it was actually a crime that had been captured on tape as opposed to again just a very sad tragic death of of a beloved musician so what what then would have to happen if the police wanted that vhs can they just ask for it and and the news station has to comply or what's, what's most likely to happen? Yeah, my understanding, and again, we're sort of floating out of my depth um, of experience, but my understanding is that at that point, they would need to subpoena the footage or have some other kind of court order to examine the footage or stop it from being shared. So I am surprised. And again, in the world of the show, it ends up just that sort of Jessica and the detective just like head over to the to the <laughs> to the TV station to view the footage. And that that's just something I think we have to roll with with Murder She Wrote because it's always happening if you think about it too hard and then you stop enjoying it. <laughs> that's what this podcast is for to make sure you never enjoy it ever again. <laughs> I do and love just like watching and thinking, okay, what are Elizabeth and Laura going to think about this scene? Because I know what I would say if I was with them. Well, actually, I'd be curious to kind of just hear your first impressions. I know I kind of like put the bug in your ear before you watched it, but I just like to know kind of your gotcha. Well, I think it's like most things, the portrayal of journalists in the media generally fall into like two camps. You've got the really sort of virtuous sort of knights for truth that are not going to rest until the truth is told and shared with the public because that's our charge under the first amendment and then you have the sort of venial like sleazy journalists and there's not usually a lot of in between in in tv and movies and and like most professions the reality falls somewhere in between right there you've got deadlines and you've got ethics but you're also making on the fly decisions and com and you have competition and you are serving the people but you're also running a business my first impression was oh okay well we're going with sleazy and that's fine <laughs> in, the, in this world but really showing the footage on to to the community doesn't become a tension point in the world of the story it's just more something that allows them to kind of re-watch what happened and you know find the coffee cup and this and that besides the fact that there had to be a reason for 
the event to be filmed in the first place. And this was the reason that the world of the show settled on um, the actual journalism part of it doesn't play in as much as I kind of thought it might. To be fair, a lot of this was just my really like dog with a bone curiosity <laughs> about it because it just as Laura, I was texting her. I'm like, what, what is this? And I was like Googling it. And I'm like, this is one of those ungoogleable questions <laughs> that you have to ask somebody who's experienced it and knows the rules of the profession because, and Laura and I have had this discussion a bunch of times about the reasonable person standard in torts and law and about how that person doesn't really exist and how mm-hmm. everything is just kind of a balancing act between public policy and privacy and, and all kinds of stuff. So I think the journalism and the law are a lot of like that way especially in this particular case. Yeah, for sure. I, I think too that death, and again, this is different because it does ultimately turn out to be a murder and a crime scene and all that, but but death and covering death is something that every, every publication has to sort of come to terms with. And my experience, again, being more at the high school level, unfortunately, it, it's a truth of even a high school paper that you're going to lose somebody from your community, whether it's a student or a staff member and and you're embedded in that community and so having that conversation about like what are the ethics of how we handle this story is something that every publication has to come to terms with I have a pretty vivid memory of sitting with my students the day after we discovered that we lost a student and saying okay we we can't just jump into this heart first we have to think about the ethics and, and the prior examples of as well, because we're setting a precedent for how our publication is going to handle this when it inevitably happens again. In that case, I worked through with, with my students and we looked at lots of other examples from other school districts and other high school and college papers um, because we, of course, were writing for a very small, tight-knit community. And New Orleans is, fun fact, the number 50 uh, TV market in the country out of the top 200, which I was surprised it was that small. But we're not dealing with the pressures of, like, you got to run the story as fast as possible or somebody else is going to run it, which, of course, has gotten even more and more and more and more mm-hmm. pressure as technology has changed. It's fascinating just how different, not only technology, journalism, Everything like that, how different it is from today and then just, you know, 1984, like when this was filmed. And some of the precedents for these sorts of questions that you guys are asking in terms of like graphic nature and community standards, privacy, weighing news value and the need to inform the community. A lot of those are very historical and kind of even started with still photography. So think about some of those really um, famous and iconic photos like Kent State, where we can see that photo in our mind of the girl down on the ground holding what we know to be the the dead body of her friends. Mm -hmm. Or during the Vietnam War, there's that iconic footage of the girl running. And when you read the stories about the outlets that chose or didn't choose to share those images, what they often talk about their conversations in the newsroom where we know these are going to be really upsetting, but this is shining some light on some kind of truth that our community needs to know about this event. And people talk about the Vietnam photo as changing the course of American sentiment about the Vietnam conflict or Kent State. Again, everybody has seen that photo in their history class or in their ethics class or in, well, in my case, a journalism class. But so those are some of the conversations. And I do sort of wonder in this case, if it really truly of the case of the world of the show, it would be really sad, but if it hadn't turned out to be a murder, that's kind of a weird story, Mm -hmm. right? Like this man, this poor man just died during his concert. And another thing, and I actually, I forgot to mention this earlier, and I think Elizabeth, you brought this up when we were chatting before is, is the wishes of their family. Mm-hmm. And we, of course, there's always conventions around releasing the names of crime victims or you know, folks who've experienced violent death in, say, a car accident or something like that is always very predicated on law enforcement releasing that name to the media, but not releasing the name until all the family has been contacted. And obviously in this case, his wife was sitting right there and we don't know if he has a lot of other family, but the wishes of the family, I think 
that's never something that they say is how is his wife going to feel about his death being broadcast mm-hmm. on the evening news? Uh, we don't hear that conversation in the sort of it's news, you know, must mustache twirling uh-huh. conversation that, that we hear gotta get them ratings gotta <laughs> compete with the other three networks in town <laughs> I, I feel like maybe i was just like conditioned to to think that death is a super private event but now that this is like gone through an analysis that that is familiar to me and and to you laura as attorneys like i think it i think i'm a lot less angry at the show now <laughs> Good, well, I'm glad. I, I hate when you're angry with with my Jessica. Yes, uh-huh. we don't want to well, make just not you, evil boy twin. <laughs> so the only other scene where there's really sort of the ethical implications, besides the weirdness of them watching the video at the station, is the conversation that evil Mark Twain, is that what we're calling him? That's what um, mean Mark Twain, evil yeah. Kenny Rogers, any combination of that will work. When he walks in and, and says, What are you doing watching this? That footage, like you're not allowed to be here. And then he realizes that the detective is there and he's very abashed and he's very cowed and he says something along the lines of like of course we always want to comply with law enforcement Mm -hmm. and that actually pinged me almost more than broadcasting the death because for most I think most journalists they know they need to work with law enforcement and that we're all part of the same community and our interests are similar sometimes but also um, most journalists even TV journalists that are really working hard for those ratings, they take their responsibility to be a watchdog very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just a knee-jerk response to help out the police or law enforcement. And that's where a lot of tension comes from in, in our system. But, you know, journalists will say it's the only profession besides the ones, besides some of our, you know, leadership roles like president and senator, but it's the only profession that's called out in the constitution. And it's called out specifically to, to be protected so that we have that fourth estate that's watching our government and making sure that it's serving the people. And again, that's that very pie in the sky ideal world. But I don't think you would hear very many newspaper editors or station managers just immediately say, oh, of course, officer, like we're going to help you out with whatever you need, because that isn't really how they see their role. Now that you mentioned it, it was was very odd to see someone in, in that kind of role comply so easily or willingly. It made me wonder if the detective had some dirt on him, <laughs> but we'll never know. I don't know. That that detective was a pretty tough customer. It wouldn't mm-hmm. surprise me if he had dirt on everybody in New Orleans. Yeah, that's a whole other show we'll never get to watch. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dana, thank you so much for coming on our little show and sharing your expertise. This is not the last time we will see questions of journalistic ethics come up in the show so hopefully you'll still be listening then and maybe if you feel like coming on back oh i can guarantee it i was a huge fan back in the day when i was babysitting it was always one of my go-to shows to watch in the 80s and and i would love to come back on as expert witness anytime excellent we will we'd love to have you it was my pleasure thanks dana We have to do a golden gravy. You have to go first because I have to think about this. I didn't really think about it either. Like if I had to give it to anybody, it would be 12 year old doctor. Oh yeah. Just for the simple, the simple fact that like everybody else in this was just a straight up bummer and like didn't fit Grady's essence at all. Whereas 12 year old doctor would be Grady if he were a doctor. Of course, Grady would check the eyelid and pronounce yeah, someone and then dead. Be like, I'm a doctor, and just like run up there without like observing any kind of like protocols. You don't just run up to a person and like grab their eyeballs if you don't know what's happening to them. Like, and you at least administer administer CPR. I think. Why not? What's it gonna hurt? Oh yeah. Well, first day as an intern, he didn't know about that yet. They didn't teach him that at underwater basket of medicine. And oh my god, I bet he called his mom after that and told her that he saw a dead body because that seems like the type of thing that twelve-year-old doctor would do. So congratulations, Doogie Howser. <laughs> 
season one, episode 15, My Johnny Lies Over the Ocean. Jessica goes on a cruise with her friend Pamela, who has just been released from a sanitarium where she was recovering from the suicide of her husband, Johnny. However, on board the ship, Pamela is the victim of a terror campaign and another passenger is found dead. But I'm looking at this, I'm looking at conflicting synopses here because one says it's her friend, the other one says it's, but yeah, I think it's pretty... I'm pretty sure it's her yes. niece. No, it's yeah, her niece. Is- and then Leslie Nielsen is in this episode. And he is a hot. Is this the one where she, like, puts on the trench coat and pretends to be... Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh, my God. Oh, man. This is going to be a good one. I'm excited for this one. Hopefully, it would be a nice palate cleanser after this, like, festival of depression that we've had. This. So, we have that to look forward to. And in the meantime, thanks for listening, I guess, if you made it through this episode without wanting to poison yourself. Well, rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your friends about us. Jeremy as our, our theme music. And to Rachel for our podcast art. And to friends of the pod, including our friend of the pod, Dana, who is nice enough to share her wisdom with us. And as always, stay woke.